This is hell. So the Grim Reaper's been in the back of the bowling alley for a very long time playing with the claw machine. And yesterday, he finally got Henry Kissinger. Go figure. May he rest in piss. (laughs) (laughs) Good Lord. Have you seen the uh, Rolling Stone headline announcing his death? No. Oh, man. It reads, uh, under the subject line of good riddance, (laughs) it reads... Henry Kissinger, war criminal beloved by the America's ruling class, finally dies. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. Wow. That's exceptional. Who wrote the article, anyway? Uh, Spencer Ackerman. Oh, past guest on the show. Yeah. So when anti-corruption efforts intentionally become the source of corruption, then you know you can confidently say this is hell and that's exactly what happened in brazil during what is known as the long coup a u.s-backed coup that forced out one democratically elected leader imprisoned another and did everything it could to destroy a leftist political movement that had proven to be successful for all brazilians while in office well the elite weren't too happy about him As today's guest tells us, the writing we will be discussing has been three years in the making. It is the first peer-reviewed academic study of U.S. involvement in Operation Car Wash and appears in the new issue of Latin American Perspectives, which is a Sage Journals publication and can be found at journals.sagepub.com. The study is titled Anti-Corruption and Imperialist Blind Spots, the Role of the United States in Brazil's Long Coup. Our guest will be Brian Muir, who is a co-author of that study. Brian is a Telesur TV journalist and former co-editor of Brazil Wire, a progressive voluntarily managed outlet created to challenge corporate media framings of Brazilian politics. He is also editor and contributor to Year of Lead, Washington, Wall Street, and the New Imperialism in Brazil. His co-authors on this new study at Latin American Perspectives include Brian Pitts, Assistant Director of the UCLA Latin American Institute and the author of Until the Storm Passes, Politicians, Democracy, and the Demise of Brazil's Military Dictatorship. Also working on the study, Kathy Swart, a professor and librarian at Pierce College in Washington, where uh, she teaches courses on uh, Latin America that led her to critically examine dominant narratives. As well as Rafael R. Joris, a professor of Latin American history and politics at the University of uh, Denver, and Sean T. Mitchell, an associate professor and chair of sociology and anthropology at Rutgers University, New- Newark. He writes about inequality politics in Brazil and elsewhere. So a lot of academics are behind this study. Brian Muir has been contributing to This Is Hell as our correspondent on all things Brazil for many, many years. He was on the show most recently back in July when we talked with him about his substack, Delinking Brazil. Support Brian's writing by going to bmir, that's B-M-I-E-R dot substack dot com. He was also on the show back in January, shortly after the failed coup to overthrow President Lula da Silva by supporters of former President Jair Bolsonaro. Uh, that's right, like our first guest this week, Christopher Ketchum, our final guest of the, the week, Brian Muir. They're uh, both on the show on three separate occasions in 2023, and both are being suggested by listeners as their favorite guests in interviews 
for 2023. So listen for maybe Brian, possibly Chris Ketchum, possibly both to be featured during our best of 2023 year end special starting next Monday, December 4th. You can find our last eight years of interviews with Brian for free at thisishell.com when you search on his last name, Mir, M-I-E-R. You can follow Brian on Twitter or X or whatever it's called, at Brian M. Telesur. And you can find Telesur English at telesurenglish.net. Producing is Will Ippen. Will, any plans for the weekend? Um, None so far, other than maybe... Little cleaning and uh, oh, I think I'm hitting up the chili cook off here at Carrie's. Oh, is that this weekend? Yeah, I totally forgot about it. Yeah, that. it's on Sunday, I believe. Oh, I need to come over here for that. Yeah, yeah. definitely gonna be here. I never miss a chili cook off. Oh my god, this one over here is really good. Is uh, it? One time they had 23 different chilies, so it's been, oh, wow. it's been pretty intense. <laughs> and uh, there's one person who shows up with chili and then sandwiches as well, and everybody's like, hey man, it's just a chili cook off. What are you doing here with sandwiches? <laughs> I didn't want anyone to go hungry exactly and guess what she always wins so my plan for the weekend which i will talk more about on this week's patreon podcast is doing all the things that you would never expect from a person who does a show called this is hell who has gone on and on and on and on about the holidays and how much they suck who argues the real meaning of christmas is a huge festival and feast of drinking and gambling that was co-opted by the Christians because there's no way Christ was born in December and nobody cared enough about Christ's birthday to write it down anyway. And how capitalism has made that holidays just disgusting. And the holiday music earworms that a listener mentioned in our question from Hell Answers, those, that music that you swear, those earworms you swear, we can actually hear chewing away at what's left of your gray matter after it has been inundated with one damn holiday-themed thing after another. And likely, what you'd never expect I would ever do, a person who complains that much about the holidays, I'm doing that thing, and that is... I'm getting a Christmas, Yule, Solstice, Saturnalia, Xmas, a a Tannenbaum, whatever you want to call it, we're getting a freaking tree. And we're going to decorate it all nice-like and get drunk off our ass while doing it like we do every year. But more important than my drunken weekend of tree trimming, Will, (laughs) please remind us, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what are you not looking forward to this holiday season? We will share your question from hell answers as posted at Twitter and all sorts of different places. Facebook, whatever, Patreon, Discord, all the stragglers that are still left out there. Coming up after our talk with Brian on... What we now know about U.S. involvement in the coup to overthrow the democratically elected leader of the country while destroying the nation's economy and institutions. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merch right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. And like I said, you can still leave your answer not only on X at This Is Hell Radio, but you can also leave your response to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Radio. Post it on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash thisishell, if you are a subscriber, and I suggest you do subscribe. Or you can post it in our Discord community, or you can just email it to us at thisishellradio at gmail.com. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show, when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorch in the Moment of Truth. Will, what is Jeff talking about during the Moment of Truth this week? Jeff contemplates renouncing his membership in the Homo Sapiens Club. 
all those places where I just said you can post or send or post your answer to this week's question from hell, you can go to those exact same places to tell us who your favorite guest or what your favorite interview was on This Is Hell and help us program our upcoming Best of 2023 series of shows, which begin next Monday, December 4th. Tune in Monday through Wednesday as I host the Best of 2023, featuring interviews suggested by you and our staff to be replayed as a celebration of the year that will soon be passed. If we play your suggested guest or interview, we will thank you personally on air. More suggestions are coming in. Jessica B. suggests that we play our April interview with Alyssa Quart on her book, Bootstrapped, Liberation, our, I'm sorry, Liberating Ourselves from the American Dream. Slug suggests we play a Christopher Ketchum interview. The blind greed of the ultra-rich dooms us all. Or, as well as uh, suggested Mike, uh, Malcolm Harris. We play our Malcolm Harris interview from April. Uh, Silicon Valley versus Humanity on his book Palo Alto. Uh, also another suggestion from Slug is Matthew King who wrote about big tech's waste solutions being a scam and George Monbiod on the show uh, to talk about the global food system and how it's a recipe for mass death, as well as, Slug says, play that Sari McDeezy interview again, the one on Western media. History began and ended on October 7th in their perspective. Also, we suggest play any and all Brian Muir interviews, so look for Brian again. Uh, Korg says, uh, here's a list of my five favorites from 2023. Samuel Moyne discussing liberalism against itself. Garrison Lovely on a McKenzie whistleblower spills the beans. Claire Provost and Matt Kennard explaining how democracy over, I'm sorry, how corporations overthrew democracy. Lisa Corrigan talking about the evisceration of a public university at West Virginia University. And again, Korg seconds Slug's suggestion of Malcolm Harris. So send us your favorite guests or interviews of 2023. And who knows, we may be playing your favorites during our special upcoming Best of 2023 series. Coming up. The U.S., the Department of Justice, the FBI, the CIA, they were all involved in the coup that overthrew Brazil's elected leader and imprisoned a former president while destroying the country's economy. Will shares more of your answers to our most recent question from hell. We'll tell you what will be happening on uh, this week's Patreon podcast exclusively for Patreon patrons at patreon.com slash thisishell. We'll also tell you what's happening next week here on the show. And Jeff Dorchin will be delivering... Another moment of truth. Live from the United States, where the law is far too often the crime, this is hell and wow did the U.S. make the law crime in Brazil by perverting the idea of anti-corruption and actually using it to corrupt a nation so badly that it overturned an election, unlawfully imprisoned a former president, and destroyed an economy as well as the nation's institutions. Here to let us or get us all caught up on the latest when it comes to U.S. complicity in the long coup in Brazil, returning to this is hell. Brian Muir is co-author of the new study, Anti-Corruption and Imperialist Blind Spots, The Role of the United States in Brazil's Long Coup. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Brian. Thanks for having me again. It's great to be here. Wish I could go to the chili cook-off. It's going to be great. It's always really great. A couple of years ago, somebody uh, made chili with snails in it that was absolutely outstanding. It was really great. Um, 
It sounds good. As long as they're edible snails. Yes, exactly. Not the kinds you're not supposed to eat. So, Brian, your study begins with the straightforward statement, a comprehensive examination of the evidence available contained in U.S. government statements, English language media reports, and hacked telegram chats among Brazilian prosecutors indicates that the United States was closely involved in the long coup that removed the left from power in Brazil in 2016 and secured the election of the far right in 2018. If this does date back to 2016, as documents show it did, that means the long coup in Brazil that led to the far right Jair Bolsonaro becoming president, that it got support from the Obama administration. In January, Bolsonaro was again involved in a plot to overthrow the government in response to losing his re-election, according to a Brazilian congressional report. Was the Obama administration uh, against the government uh, that uh, of uh, you know uh, President Lula? Was the Obama administration the government that started the coup process and then it continued under Trump? Can we and should we blame either administration more for the coup than the other? Yeah, um, I got in a lot of arguments uh, during the Trump Hillary. Clinton election battle with friends up in the U.S. over this. But yes, the Obama administration is where it started. Uh, And, you know, the earliest record of the collaboration is from 2009. So it wasn't just like something that started in the last days, the waning days of the Obama administration. Maybe he wasn't paying attention or something. No, I mean, the government was, the Obama administration was actively involved And we can point out several things that happened before car wash that showed that the Obama administration was involved nefariously in trying to destabilize Brazil. There was the NSA spying incident where it turned out the NSA had been wiretapping Dilma Rousseff's smartphone. You know, apparently all her aides were telling her not to use a smartphone, be careful, and she didn't listen to them. But, you know, she was wiretapped. The first meeting between Sergio Moro and U.S. government officials in which they planned to start an anti-corruption, joint anti-corruption operation, was in 2009. And we know that from uh, leaked State Department cables that were first published by WikiLeaks. Uh, They talked about starting a joint anti-corruption investigation either in Curitiba, Sao Paulo, or um, Cuiabá, Mato Grosso. And, uh, well, they actually went on and did it in Curitiba. So that's the first in- first sign we have that they were working on this. You know, but as far as Operation Car Wash goes, the first, we have records from legal blogs. Um, there's all these blogs about the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, which is a, a law that enables U.S. Department of Justice to um, partner up on anti-corruption investigations in any country that's a signatory to the like 1998 Anti-Corruption Act. And all that it takes is for the company or the people being investigated to have ever made any transaction in dollars or to have any bank account in the US or or anything. So it's pretty broad powers. And, uh, and so these blogs that specialize in the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act were talking about this investigation as early as 2014. There's a Reuters article from 2014 that talks about how the FBI is doing all this work to fight corruptions overseas, 
And it uses Operation Car Wash as an example, but it doesn't directly say that they're working on it. They have an FBI spokesman saying, this is an example of what we're talking about, you know? So they come very close. But it's 2016 when the Department of Justice started posting uh, press releases on its own website talking about its partnership with the Operation Car Wash or Lava Jato and Portuguese Task Force. And this made the news at the time. New York Times, Reuters, um, Washington Post, other a bunch of other newspapers talked about it because the largest foreign corruption um, lawsuit settlement in American history had just been um, had just taken place in the New York uh, Southern District Court, in which Brazilian companies Odebrecht and Braskem, which is a subsidiary of the state petroleum company Petrobras, that was also being spied on in the NSA scandal, were forced to pay $3.5 billion in fines. And so there were articles about that framed as a positive. Um, the New York Times ran four of them. And then we see after 2016, nobody ever mentioned it again in the U.S. media, you know? <laughs> So let's go back to Obama just for a moment, because you mentioned a lot of things there that I definitely want to touch on. I want to touch on how the anti-corruption scheme became corrupt, uh, how the U.S. essentially under Bill Clinton became the anti-corruption police of the world, how the Department of Justice seemed to be completely open about the long coup that they were participating in, as well as, uh, you know, the... Uh, national framing of and international framing of what corruption is and what makes corruption. I want to get to all that, but you mentioned how Obama even uh, managed to swipe at Lula in his 2020 memoir, claiming that Lula reportedly had the scruples of a Tammany Hall boss and rumors swirled about government cronyism, sweetheart deals, and kickbacks that ran into billions. As Obama prepared to leave office in 2016, his Department of Justice was working closely with Lava Jato as it secured the downfall of a Brazilian left more electorally successful than U.S. leftists could dream of, paving the way for Bolsonaro's election. So, in your opinion, why was Obama so anti-Lula? And is that reflective of Obama or is that just reflective of U.S. foreign policy writ large? Well, I think both. But um, first of all, I just want to point out the utter hypocrisy of a former daily administration employee comparing both uh, comparing Lula with the second most corrupt American urban political machine in history behind the daily machine, because Tammany Hall wasn't as bad as the dailies. Right. He was part of the daily administration. So he's got a lot of nerve. You know, if anyone has the scruples of a Tammany Hall boss, it's Obama, because he worked for someone you know, who was part of an organization that was worse than Tammany Hall. You know, just getting that off my chest first. Okay. Because it just it pisses me off. I know. But <laughs> he would have the gall to even say that. I mean, has he ever offered any self-criticism about his role and Michelle's role in the Daily Administration? <laughs> remember when they privatized the... Remember when he passed that law saying that everyone on the West Side had to build a metal fence around their houses, a black iron fence, and the only supplier they could use was his brother's company? <laughs> you know, give me a break. Yeah, those those bike racks were really nice too. Yeah, and the privatizing the parking meter system? What the what the hell? Uh, we didn't we not didn't. even mention all of the going on in the water department. 
<laughs> yeah, and then there's the Skyway too. You know, everything that's been privatized. But so, uh, so why do you think that Lula had it, or uh, Obama had it so out for Lula, or was it him, or was it just America? Lula Ford? thinks okay. There's two things going on here. First of all, as we know, Obama probably went into the office of president a little bit naive about what kind of power he actually had. And I think he had some good intentions initially, um, but essentially he was just a puppet of U.S. corporate interests. And U.S. corporations were very interested in overthrowing the Workers' Party because it refused to privatize the state oil company, which had just found one of the world's largest offshore oil deposits. You know, six months after they discovered the pre-salt oil fields, uh, the U.S. military reestablished Southcom, the Southern Command, for the first time since the World War II era, and uh, you know started getting more involved militarily in South America. And anytime you see, they 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 were saying at the time that this was going to propel Brazil into being the world's fifth largest oil producer. So if you look at all of the world's largest oil producers, the U.S. has tried to coup all of them or coup all of them, starting with Iran. You know, in 1953, the CIA's first coup. So obviously, there were oil interests, but there were other interests, mining, you know, agribusiness, beef, uh, all of these uh, things that the um, the U- U.S. corporations didn't like the way that uh, the Lula administration was um, reducing deforestation in the Amazon because the deforestation is driven by soy and beef. You know, and the biggest soy companies like Cargill were making a fortune off of deforesting deforesting the Amazon. There's all you know. There's also the geopolitical aspects. You know, um, the Lula administration recognized the state of Palestine. It uh, it helped create the BRICS. You know, it had close relations with Russia and China and Cuba, Venezuela, and all these other countries that are like on the U.S. enemies list. Uh, but on top of that, on a personal level, when I interviewed Lula with Michael Brooks, the late great Michael Brooks and Dan Hunt, uh, Lula said he always thought Obama was a little bit jealous of him because of all the attention he was getting, you know, because Lula, uh, Obama wanted to be center of attention in these big international meetings and things like these forums and G20 and all of that. And inevitably, there'd be a crowd of people wanting to talk to Lula. And Obama felt a little bit slighted at some point. That's Lula's theory about it. But I don't think personal issues came in uh, to play nearly as much, if at all, as just like the national security state and the corporations uh, in this. You know, I mean, it's insane that U.S. lectures other countries about democracy and there's a system where there's unlimited campaign contributions from corporations and billionaire donors and things like that. We see what just happened with IPEC, this IPEC donor trying to, um, you know, pay someone $20 million to run against Rashida Tlaib in Michigan, right? I mean, that, that would be unheard of in just about any other country in the world. So we know the U.S. is basically just a government run by corporations, and the corporations weren't happy with the Workers' Party. 
But the Workers' Party, while it was in office, as you point out in the study, by late 2018, Brazil's progress, which it had made a lot of progress, had been put on hold, if not reversed, after the Lula presidency had been or the uh, had been ended, uh, Dilma Rousseff presidency had been ended, Michel Temer had taken over, uh, the PT had been removed from power in 2016 through the spurious impeachment of Lula's successor, Dilma Rousseff, as the report states, her former vice president, the center-right Michel Temer had imposed a return to neoliberalism with privatizations and concessions to foreign oil companies. Between 2014 and 2019, inequality increased in Brazil at a similar pace to its historic decrease between 2001 and 2014. Things were going really well under Lula. And then this whole uh, coup, long coup started. Dilma Rousseff loses power. Michelle Temer takes over and they completely change all of the economic success uh, successful policies that Lula had. If it was working, if the economy was working seemingly for more Brazilians than it had in a long time, why abandon it? Why would Brazilians abandon it? Yeah, why would Michel Temer abandon it? If it's working for the Brazilians, you would think that he would keep it going so he could stay in office. Why would he abandon an economic policy that was doing well in Brazil? Well, there was a plan called Bridge to the Future that uh, was so poorly written in Portuguese that uh, a lot of people said it looked like a Google, almost like a Google translate of something that had initially been written in English. Okay. And it was just like a Washington consensus laundry list of structural adjustments. And um, they say that, uh, and it was supported by, Dilma Rousseff's opponent, Ercio Neves, who was helped in his campaign by David Axelrod's former PR firm, which had been hired at one point to run the social media leading up to the election year. David, um, David Axelrod, the former uh, Obama campaign manager. Yes. And uh, at one point, um, a correspondent from the LA Times told my partner, my partner from Brazil Wire, that there was an unwritten rule among foreign correspondents that Neves had to win the election, right? And so as and Dilma waffled and made the same mistake as Django Goulart after she was elected. Neves claimed that the election had been stolen, and um, they managed to gridlock her government. She wasn't able to push anything through after the beginning of her first term in 2015, and she made the mistake of trying to make a few concessions to. Uh, neoliberal interests. For example, uh, she changed the unemployment law so that instead of receiving unemployment after six months working at a job, if you, if it was your first job, if you were a young person, you had to work there for nine months to receive unemployment. This was widely attacked by the labor unions and the social movements. And, you know, the Trotskyists were calling her neoliberal for this. And she also put a neoliberal in charge of the economics ministry, but the actual concessions they made were light compared to Bridges of the Future. So the minute Temer took office, um, remembering that people from Ariel Neves' party, PSDB, were in Washington negotiating with John Kerry days before the coup, uh, negotiating uh, privatization of the oil fields and things like that. Um, apparently, allegedly. And, uh, you know, uh, at a moment, 
after Dilma was unjustly ousted from power on nothing, you know, she's been fully exonerated from the budgetary infraction that's clearly not an, an impeachable offense according to the Brazilian constitution. She's even been exonerated from doing that. She didn't even do it. But, you know, very shortly after she was thrown out of office, a lot of countries around the world were refusing to acknowledge Michelle Temer as the new president. But Joe Biden came to met with Temer three days after the impeachment vote to say the U.S. has is giving you all of our support. You have the full support. Obama immediately recognized Temer as the legitimate president of Brazil. And Temer immediately started implementing the, you know, the agenda items from the Bridge to the Future project, which included privatizing, beginning to privatize the offshore oil fields. Um, he switched the federal government's computer system from Linux back to Microsoft. You know, he relaxed laws on pesticides, which pleased Monsanto, uh, making it easy to fast track uh, glyphosate and other substances that are actually illegal in Europe for use in Brazil. Um, he he cut money to um, to uh, environmental agencies that were fighting against deforestation and everything that was you know on the list basically. So it was a project that seems to be very similar to the uh, to what the IMF has you know used to do to countries all over the world. Uh, when they put them on what they called surveillance, they lend them money and say, but in order to get this loan, you're going to have to start charging tuition in, in the public schools. You're going to have to cut money to public health. And one thing he did that was on the list of the Bridge to the Future was that he enacted a freeze, a 20-year freeze on all public health and education spending. And this came back to really hurt Brazil during the pandemic. Uh, thankfully, that's been undone now since Lula took office. Um, but you know, that's that's basically the scenario. So I don't think he had Brazil's average Brazilian citizen in mind, you know, when he did this stuff. I think he was doing it out of his own greedy, opportunistic self-interest, like the Congress that backed him. So is Lula returning to the policies that he had that may have provoked, if you will, the Obama administration's wrath? Do you think that this that he's going to be doing the exact same policies he did in the past that may have irked the United States and may yet again irk the Biden administration, leading to yet again the United States historic support for the military when it comes to rule within Brazil? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what he's doing. So, uh, and, you know, some stuff he hasn't been able to fully implement because it's a tricky situation. I mean, considering that the the Workers' Party only has 81 members of Congress, Congress has 513 members, it only has 81, and then the inner circle of allies is like 120, they've still managed to get a lot of stuff done. In fact, just last night... Senate passed uh, a new tax on the super rich on uh, hedge funds and offshore holdings by the super wealthy. Um, so it's surprising how much they've actually managed not just to reinstate, but to expand upon in this first year of office. And also the, the economy is doing well. The, the IMF project, projection for 2023 was 0.5% growth. 
it looks like Brazil's going to close the year with like 3.5% GDP growth. You know, that, I mean, that's a controversial indicator, obviously. Mark Weisbrot could explain better than me, but still, it's a sign that, you know, that things are back to normal, which makes it hard, a little bit harder to be a journalist down here because there's no crisis going on at the moment. <laughs> so no one cares. <laughs> no one wants to hear good news. So you, you write that Lavajado's biggest victory was the imprisonment of Lula, then leading 2018 presidential polls, on manufactured charges of accepting a beachfront condo upgrade in exchange for ill-defined favors to construction companies after his term had ended. As private mes- messages hacked from the Telegram app and leaked to The Intercept would later prove, Lavajado worked precisely toward these ends. It sought to undermine the Workers' Party and later kept Lula from competing in 2018, which led to the election of Jair Bolsonaro. It is this process in which Brazilian democracy was undermined by a politicized anti-corruption campaign that we call the long coup. That's the important thing to remember. One of the important things to remember, this was a supposed anti-corruption campaign. How much doubt does this anti-corruption campaign in it, in itself end, ending up being corrupt? How much doubt do you think that casts on any future corruption investigation? While it's good to reveal how an anti-corruption campaign can be turned on its head and weaponized and instead in the long run has been part of a, a coup, do you think this anti-corruption campaign will make it so it'll be diff- more difficult to fight corruption in Brazil and elsewhere in the future? Definitely, definitely now, because like you already see it happening. You see these actual corrupt politicians, um, you know, many of them aligned with uh, the Bolsonaro or the far right getting accused of crimes. And they're like, oh, well, you know, it's just persecution. I'm just being persecuted for my politics. So it's, it does cause a mess. For example, Bolsonaro himself is on the verge of getting arrested. And uh, and he's he's under investigation for over 20 crimes. I mean, and they're like actual physical crimes with physical material evidence, not just in Lula's case. It was one coerced plea bargain testimony from an executive who changed his story three times before he got like 90 percent sentence reduction from the charges against him, uh, plus transfer to house arrest. In Bolsonaro's case, I mean, they've got like video, photos, uh, bank records, and witnesses on a bunch of things. Like one of the things he did was he got a bunch of expensive gifts from um, Middle Eastern leaders, including $3 million worth of diamond jewelry uh, and watches uh, from the Saudi, from the Saudis. And in Brazil, a president can only accept a personal gift of up to around $100 in value, and the rest has to go to the National Archives. Well, he actually fenced this stuff in New York auction houses, you know? And they've got the whole paper trail, they've got, you know, photos, they've got all the records of it. They know the auction houses, even the FBI is now helping, you know, look into this in the US. And so that's that's an actual crime involving millions of dollars. And, uh, you know, he's probably going to go to jail for that. But he's already saying, well, this is just this is just politicized. This is just political persecution. 
The study states that the use of anti-corruption to legitimate imperial involvement in the undermining of democratically elected Latin American leftist governments in the 21st century has parallels to use of anti-communism in the century before. So, Brian, what happens to anti-corruption campaigns when they do become the new anti-communism? As your study points out, the United States wasn't as interested in fighting corruption as they were interested in their own words as they were interested in supporting U.S. business interests. So what happens when, anti, when anti-corruption becomes the new anti-communism? I guess just more coups. More, you know, destabilization of any country in the global south that tries, and even some in the global north that try to exercise any kind of sovereignty. It's just used as a way to delegitimize leaders and and parties and movements and things like that to strengthen the candidacies or the illegal takeovers of leaders who are favorable to U.S. corporate interests. And remember, you remember when the Cold War ended and everyone was going like, well, it's time for us have a peace dividend. Clinton should defund the CIA. We don't need it anymore. The Cold War is over. And then the CIA started this narrative of like, well, uh, we still have an important role in the world against two pro- uh, on two issues, you know, terrorism, a growing problem, you know, and uh, corruption, and not corruption, um, advancing U.S. corporate interests abroad. And so we see that that's what they've been doing, you know, advancing corporate interests abroad, which isn't really the role of, shouldn't be the role of an Intel service. But I guess if your government's controlled by corporations, then they're working like almost like outsourced uh, corporate intelligence. You cite writing by Michael Weiss in Social Science Journal, where he concluded that the U.S. government was able to manage the news to hide U.S. involvement in the coup and to present a skewed version of reality that would soon justify coups across Latin America. Has Brazil, I mean, dating back to 1961 and the rise of the military dictatorship to overthrow the leftist government back then, has Brazil since then been the U.S. testing ground for post-war anti-communism as a foreign policy? Well, uh, I mean, they they did this in smaller countries, too, obviously. Like, even this stuff with... Um, the coup against Dilma. I mean, they they had already the the Obama administration had already actively engaged in coups in Paraguay and Honduras, right? I mean, Hillary Clinton even bragged about participation in the coup in Honduras against the lion in the hardcover version of her autobiography. It was edited out in the soft cover in the paperback version. Uh, but Brazil would be like a big where they would pilot things in a big country. You know, obviously, I mean, if you look at the round of brutal dictatorships that cropped up in Latin America in the 60s and 70s, Brazil was the first one, the first big one. You know, then came Argentina, um, Paraguay, Uruguay, Chile, you know, but it started with with 64 in Brazil. We are speaking with Brian Muir, who is on to talk to us about what is taking what is taking place in this most recent writing. Uh, and that writing was at the Latin American Perspectives, and it's the first peer-reviewed article to show that the United States was involved in and is involved in the long coup in Brazil. You write that Brazil signed the anti-bribery convention of the 
Organization for Economic Cooperation and uh, Development, the OECD, back in 1997. The convention was modeled on the 1977 Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, which you were mentioning earlier, a U.S. law prohibiting overseas bribery by U.S. companies. In 1998, the FCPA's jurisdiction was expanded to apply to any foreign company doing business in the United States or conducting any transactions in dollars. So did the U.S. under the uh, Clinton administration pronounce itself as the self-appointed corruption police of the world as few countries or multinationals can avoid making transactions in dollars? Did the United States under the Clinton administration weaponize anti-corruption policy? Uh, that's a long way back, uh, Chuck. And I was drinking a lot in the late 90s. So I can't remember Bill Clinton on corruption. What I do know from studying a lot is that the first Bush administration really pumped up its rhetoric on corruption being a big problem in Latin America. And we see like Otto Reich on C-SPAN in 2003, 2004, saying things like the biggest uh, enemy in Latin America is corruption. We see Hillary Clinton on C-SPAN in 2006, 2007, talking about how um, democracy isn't enough for Latin America. They need strong, independent judiciary, which I feel like Sergio Moore would be an example of what they had in mind, the Operation Car Wash judge, uh, when they talked about independent judiciary, a judiciary that could go after political enemies. I'm pretty sure that's what they meant. And then we see during the course of the Audis and the, you know, the second decade of the 21st century, I don't know what we call that yet. Um, we see that the, um, uh, fighting corruption has been written into the national security strategy of the United States. Uh, it was the, late, the last one in the Trump administration specifically cited corruption as one of, fighting corruption as one of the goals of uh, American security. And so we see that the thing has gotten very weaponized. Um, and uh, so that's, that's my answer. I don't, I'm, I bet... If, if I went back and looked at the Clinton years, I could find find uh, more information on this. Again, we are speaking with Brian Muir, co-author of the study Anti-Corruption and Imperial Blind Spots, the role of the United States in Brazil's long coup, which is in the most recent issue of Latin American Perspectives. And you can find that at journals.sagepub.com. You write that in one press release from uh, September 27, 2018, the Department of Justice's Criminal Fraud Section thanked Brazilian law enforcement for its assistance and specified the distribution of the fine levied on Petrobras, the nationally owned oil company, with around uh, $85 million going to the SEC and the Department of Justice. Because these were press releases, do you get the feeling that the U.S. Department of Justice thought they were doing nothing that was wrong, at, let alone immoral, unethical, undemocratic, or even illegal. Do you think that because of their openness about this, that they were either ignorant of the law or they just assumed it was something that was legal? Uh, no, I, I don't think the FBI uh, you know, had good intentions. The FBI, when it met every 15 days for five years with the Operation Car Wash Task Force to help them develop strategies for arresting Lula, I don't think they had good intentions. Um, they might 
they might have thought they were doing the right thing using Henry Kissinger style real politic. They probably thought they were doing the right thing for the United States. But I don't think they were thinking like in general, oh, we're just doing this for the common good of mankind or humankind. I don't think that was the the goal. I don't I don't um if you look at what the DA DOJ does around the world, I don't think you can give them the benefit of the doubt. So what's wrong with the relationship that the Department of Justice, the FBI, the CIA had with the Justice Department within Brazil? What's wrong with that relationship and why do we need to uh, keep that in mind when we consider the Department of Justice relationship with other national governments' justice systems? Well, um, in theory, you think it would be some, it could be something positive if they were really working on fighting crime together, because a lot of crime is transnational. In this specific case, we know from a 2017 speech, June 2017, by Acting Assistant Attorney General Kenneth Blanco, uh, that they were working illegally with the, with the Lava Jato Car Wash Task Force, bypassing all of the protocols, security protocols, that govern communication with um, employees of foreign governments in Brazil. Um, I'm not sure what the US law is related to informal communications with foreign government officials. In Brazil, it's a pretty serious crime, but Kenneth Blanco was bragging about it. Uh, he said that you know our communications, our relationship with the uh, car wash task force is fantastic. You know, we we engage in a lot of informal communications, which enables us to bypass uh, all of these bureaucratic um, protocols, protocols or bureaucratic, all this bureaucracy. And that enables us to act much more quickly and in a much more agile form. You know, well, okay, but there's a reason you have these bureaucratic protocols. It's, it's a national security issue. You can't have, you can't have law enforcement officials going behind the back of the National Justice Ministry, which would be the DOJ of Brazil, uh, behind their back and engaging in all of these partnerships and communications without their knowledge about what's going on. And we see some really nefarious stuff that happened. At one point, the DOJ attempted to kick $687 million in money that collected in in settlements against Brazilian companies directly to the Operation Car Wash Task Force so that they could open a private anti-corruption foundation. And even in, during the coup government, you know, even though it was already, I think it was the last year of the, the Temer uh, presidency, you no, know, first year of Bolsonaro presidency, even then, uh, the courts blocked it. And they said, that's illegal. You can't get money from a can't get $687 million to do whatever you want with. And so they seized the money and rerouted it into the education system. But that seems like uh, something that was the result of some kind of nefarious plan of no good, you know, especially when we now know how corrupt the members of the task force actually were. I mean, one of them, the head of the task force, Dalton Dalignol, has been was um, kicked out of office for breaking the law. I mean, they, they essentially proved that he had resigned from the public prosecutor's office and run for Congress to get out of all of these corruption investigations that he was um, that he was the target of, because he had run up 
massive, massive travel bills. He was only staying in five-star hotels and luxury accommodations, renting luxury cars, eating in the best restaurants and breaking all of their, I mean, he went millions of dollars over his travel budget and they were investigating him for that. And so he said, well, I'll quit and run for Congress. I'll have diplomatic, I'll have um, parliamentary immunity. But it, that was just one of the things he did. And then Morrow himself, he's he's under investigation for all kinds of crimes. Like one one thing he's under investigation and might be thrown out of Morrow was a judge, right? In who in in car wash, he um he switched parties during the election campaign for Senate last year, and he spent a bunch of official government supplied campaign funding from the first party on his campaign under the second party. So the first party press criminal charges against him. That's Bolsonaro's party. And uh, he's on the verge of getting kicked out of the Senate for that. On top of that, they found all of these properties in members of the task force name that they can't really explain how they got, you know, luxury properties and things like much beyond the silly charge that they use as an excuse to arrest Lula. I mean, Lula, okay, so even if Lula had gotten an upgrade on an apartment, several years after he left office, which he hadn't, it never happened, right? But even if it did, he wasn't in office. I mean, what if Jimmy Carter was going to buy a vacation house in the Florida panhandle and the real estate agency said, the condo agency said, hey, we'll give you a little bit better one because the publicity of you living here will enable us to charge more money for our condos. Would Carter go to jail for that? You know, it's just, the whole thing was just absurd. But in the case of Dalton Dalignol from Car Wash, you know, he's acquired expensive properties while he was on the job, on a on a salary that's not commensurate to the value of those properties. So if a U.S. Brazil Justice Department's collaboration overthrew an elected leader, caused economic devastation as well as institutional devastation to Brazil, illegally imprisoned a presidential candidate. Who benefited from all of this? Well, I have an article I wrote about this this called um, something about how um, about economic sabotage. Uh, it was an upside down world and uh, and in Brazil wire too. I think if you just Google my name and economic sabotage, this is a long time ago. You know, I've been writing about this stuff for a long time, but I actually detail which corporations benefited from the, the most from the coup against Dilma Rousseff and how much money they made and stuff like that. And it's mining, agribusiness, uh, pesticides, uh, petroleum. You know, they all gained a lot. And even the arms industry gained a lot with the Bolsonaro presidency because he relaxed. Um, gun laws and things like that. So those companies all made a fortune. All of the usual suspects, it, it seems well, like. Exactly. I mean, if you look at the history of Latin America, all of the coups have big U.S. corporations involved with them. Look at Chile, ITT, uh, was the, you know, the private sector orchestrator of the coup in Chile. They, they set up an international boycott of Chilean copper to destabilize the economy during the lead up to Allende's ouster and copper is their biggest export commodity. So it's a really big part of their economy. And that was, you know, Kissinger was involved in that whole scenario. And that tactic at the time, uh, there's a uh, declassified phone conversation with Nixon just yelling, make their economy bleed. Um, 
to the CIA uh, in during the lead up to the coup against Allende. And that's exactly what U.S. asset Judge Sergio Moro, a judge from a low level district court in Curitiba did when he ordered a full paralyzation of all activities by Brazil's five largest construction and engineering companies in 2015, which led to 4.4 million direct and indirect job losses and a 2.8 drop in GDP that year. So they made the Brazilian economy bleed that caused Rousseff's popularity to plummet before the, the sham impeachment proceedings began. So, as you know, uh, that there's that old phrase of about uh, the United States propaganda system that uh, there isn't a U.S. propaganda system, which proves how good the U.S. propaganda system is. Was the long coup, is the long coup, if it's still continuing, and it seems like it is to some degree, uh, was it more than anything a propaganda campaign, a disinformation campaign, a psyops campaign using anti-corruption as a front to destroy a popular leftist government that was improving people's lives? Is this more than anything, instead of economic sanctions, instead of an invasion, it, was this a propaganda, a psyops war that was targeted on the Brazilian people? Yeah, I don't know if more than anything. I mean, that was one definitely one facet of it was the inf- disinformation campaign. And I just want to um, point out, especially any foreign correspondent who was living in Brazil, your job at, at the minimum, at the bare minimum, is to read what they're writing about Brazil in the important newspapers. Every single correspondent who was in Brazil Every Brazil-based writer or journalist who was in, you know, in Brazil at the time in 2016 read those four New York Times articles about U.S. participation in Operation Car Wash. They all read that stuff. Reuters was writing about it, you know. So then we had this period of um, from 2017 until August or something, no, March 2020 in which uh, none of them mentioned it. It was only after The Intercept uh, released a small fraction of the leaks that had been uncovered by the hacker Walter Delgatti in what's called Operation Spoofing. They they rejected most. He wanted to send them everything, and Greenwald everything. And Greenwald said, no, we, we can write enough articles as it is off of this whatever 17 megabytes you sent, 70 megabytes you sent us the total size of the archives was six terabytes. Um, it took them, they published 96 articles about Lava Jato, about the collusion between the prosecutors and the judge before they got around to their article that Greenwald did not participate in about the FBI and the DOJ and all of this stuff that they uncovered, which was very valuable. But you would think that would have been the first thing that they published or one of the first articles they published. Um, but between those two moments, there's a total media whiteout on U.S. involvement in Operation Car Wash by everyone, even people who have reputations as being leftists in the U.S. And uh, I and other people on Brazil Wire and stuff, we were constantly gaslighted and uh, accused of being conspiracy theorists for writing about this. I wrote something like 40 articles about U.S. involvement in Operation Car Wash during this period. And so um, I think it's nice that 
we finally got this academic article out so that now this is part of the you know academic scientific literature. We've proven it from an academic perspective, not hard to do because we have actual government, you know, press releases talking about it, but we, it's, it's now like an academic fact. So with any other um, academic writing about Brazil in the future is going to have to at least cite this article, even if they don't agree with it. Um, but it's part of the literature now. And I think that's really important. And um, I think that journalists and acad and Latin America academics need to engage in some kind of self-criticism to ask themselves why they let this happen. Chuck, I remember like the week before Lula was arrested, a couple of days, I was in the house of a Guardian writer uh, based in Brazil, and he was preparing his article about Lula's arrest, and he was going to, uh, he asked me if I should put anything in it, and I said, yes, mention that it's that the U.S. DOJ is involved in this. And he told me, well, I don't think our readers would be interested in that. Really, why wouldn't anyone be interested in that? <laughs> you know? It doesn't make any sense. Uh, one last question for you, Brian, and I'm going to ask you a question from hell, a question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. That's the category this is going to fall into. How aware do you think the American people are of bipartisan U.S. foreign policy, which supports the right around the world, is opposed to the left, and do you think the United States, the American people are fine with that, that they support that, that they might like some leftist ideas like social security at home, but they are all opposed to right, uh, left-wing governments around the world. Do you think that is an accurate reflection of the American people? And uh, do you think the American people realize that they support the right around the world and they oppose the rise of any left uh, political movement? I think that um, the the final thing there is is a better description. I think the average American person is bombarded with so much disinformation, even from so-called progressive publications. Sometimes that they just don't have the slightest idea what's going on. The American people are victims. I think if American people knew about First of all, I don't think the average American person even knows what right or left is anymore, because people think Biden's a leftist. You know, I mean, yeah, there's a there's 15 or 20 percent of the American people who who might know, but I I just think that with I was I saw legendary liberation theology uh, author and monk um, Frey Beto give a speech a couple of weeks ago, and he said that like political education is more important than ever because these days people are bombarded 24 hours a day by disinformation every time they open their phones every time they turn on the tv or go on the internet on their computer they're just bombarded with disinformation and so i don't think you can blame uh, american people for being victims of that process i just wish they'd uh, recognize it a little bit more you know also a lot of people suck <laughs> 
On that note, Brian, it's always a pleasure speaking with you. Again, we've been talking to Brian Muir, co-author of the study, Anti-Corruption and Imperialist Blind Spots, uh, the role of the United States in Brazil's long coup. Make sure you show your support for Brian Muir on his substack, which is bmuir.substack.com. Follow Brian on Twitter at Brian M. Telesur and find Telesur English at Telesur. English.net. Again, his substack is bmir, M-I-E-R, substack.substack.com. Thank you so much for being back on the show. Have a great holiday season, my friend. All right, and please have an extra 23 bowls of chili for me at Carrie's Lounge this weekend. (laughs) I will do that, and then I will complain to you in email about what's happened to my stomach. So thank you very much, Brian. Take care. This is hell where we make learning about evil fun if our conversation with Brian reminded you that the U.S. can always find an excuse to overthrow nations it doesn't like. Show your appreciation for completely commercial-free This Is Hell, providing over 27 years of content that you cannot find anywhere else, giving airtime to analysis like that of Brian Muir that you won't hear anywhere else, and providing new content to you absolutely free every week since 1996, including 10 years of free shows that you can listen to right now at thisishell.com. Show your support by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Will, please remind us what is this week's question from Hell? and tell us how our listeners are responding. This week's question from Hell is, what are you not looking forward to this holiday season? And let's see, where to start? Okay, Uh, over on Patreon, uh, new response from Slug, who says, those inevitably uncomfortable conversations with family and friends and how well we are all just serving the Death Star. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good one. Uh, Old Grouch replies, The news that a right-wing faction of the IDF has set off a nuke over Iran as a prophylactic against any possibility of a further ceasefire. Okay, who's crazy here? Remember we set off two over Japan simply as a warning to the Soviet Union. When the words nuke, prophylactic, and Soviet Union are in the same answer to the question from hell. <laughs> it wasn't on my bingo card. No, no. Um, Neil C. replies, reindeer poop. <laughs> All right. Simpler name. Always on the roof. Always. Always. On the roof. Always. Um, simpler name, please, replies, the feeling that I need to do something, quote, fun and, quote, special to be normal. That is the one of the worst parts of mm-hmm. the Christmas season, that if you're not having fun, you're doing something wrong. Yep. It's, <laughs> it's, it's possible that at this time of year, I just happen to be depressed. The two things may not be related. They yeah. may be related, but why not just let people be happier, depressed whenever they need to be happier, depressed? Right. Yeah. Feelings are feelings. Sure. And it's, I mean, it doesn't help that it's like dark at four o'clock now. <laughs> no, it doesn't. It certainly gets me down. <laughs> All right, over on Discord, we have a couple of responses. Um, I lost my place. Uh, uh, Altoona Pizza replies, great name, um, Santa's hot take on Israel. (laughs) (laughs) All right. That is really, really good. Yeah. Might um, be a conflict of interest there with Santa. Let's see, uh, we have some some new ones in the Hellhole Facebook group. Welcome to the Hellhole. Uh-huh. Um, Nick E. 
plus the ghost of Christmas Futures Bony Forefinger. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> and Eric G replies Scrooge. All right. All right. And then we have a couple on, uh, a few on Twitter. Do you want me to get to those or do you want to wait till after Jeffy? Uh, let's wait for after Jeffy. Okay, cool. Uh, so, uh, and what is Jeff up to this week again? I forgot. Uh, Jeff contemplates renouncing his membership in the Homo Sapiens Club. You can still leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, at our uh, Facebook group page, Welcome to the Hellhole, at our Patreon page, and our Discord community. You can email it to us at thisishellradio at gmail.com. But we got to have your answer by the end, by, uh, the end of this week's show and that would be right after Jeff Dorchin does the moment of truth so keeping it real real deep in debt since 1996 this is hell if you want to help us climb out of that debt please subscribe to our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell this week on Patreon the holidays are upon us it's true they can be annoying they can be problematic they can be expensive they can be time and energy consuming they can be a real source of waste but instead of getting stressed out, instead of being so repulsed by the whole thing, maybe, just maybe, we can do better than what we're supposed to be doing over the holidays. Maybe we can stop the holidays from sucking and imposing their will upon us every year. Also on Patreon, 15 years ago this week, we were asking listeners the same question that we are asking you this year, and that is, who were your favorite guests? What were your favorite interviews that were featured? on that year's set of shows. One of the guest interviews you selected back in 2008 was a talk we had with David K. Johnston, an independent investigative journalist who was formerly with the New York Times and had shifted his focusing uh, on, in reporting to the subject of taxation. David was on to talk about his book, Free Lunch, how the wealthiest Americans enrich themselves at government expense and stick you with the bill. But the only way you can hear me explain why we need an alternative to really enjoy what we call holidays. And one of our listener favorites from 15 years ago about the rich getting rich and sticking the rest of us with the bill is by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell. Coming up, Jeff with the moment of truth, the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell. And we will be announcing this week's winner. We'll also be telling you what's happening on next week's show. You are listening to God's favorite radio show, Prove Me Wrong, this is hell, and I know you have Hefe on the line. One, two, you know what to do. Hey. One more time. The Broken Brain Part Two Taxonomy. Last week, we discovered another species of human living alongside us, Homo puskerstankulus, the puskerstankles, named in portmanteau fashion by combining the epithets that leapt from my mouth upon endeavoring to understand what type of human could wield their other-than-sapient logic, fallopian carbuncles, anal cankers, ambulatory pus sacks, stinkered, stanky barnacles encrusting the hull of the ship of humanity, Husker Stankles. This week, we divide the umbrella category of Puskerstankles into the major types 
and their attributes. This is by no means an exhaustive list. Each subcategory contains sub-subcategories, like their counterparts, us, the arrogantly self-branded Homo sapiens, the Homo puscostenculus, never completely agree amongst each other. Differences, small or not so small, become cause for enmity between individuals within each subcategory, requiring new definitions of resulting sub-sub-subcategories, many of which attract their own puscostenculus adherents, only to swell into fully-fledged subcategories of their own. The most common of the major subcategories is the one to which the anti-wokeness puskerstankles belong. In a way, anti-wokeness could be understood as the defining characteristic of Homer puskerstankulus, except that there are obviously those who have issues with wokeness who are not also puskerstankles. What distinguishes the puskerstankular anti-woke from the sapient anti-woke is that the latter have small disagreements with elements of wokeness on definitions or degrees, whereas the former simply understand wokeness to be a capitulation to the will of those whom they believe don't even deserve a hearing. The homo sapiens, or homo s, might see wokeness as a symptom of persecuted or marginalized people seeking redress for what they validly understand as historical and current wrongs done to their group, while the homo puscarstanculus, or homo p, see wokeness as a major problem in itself, a monster created to punish white men and those who support the agenda of white Christian male supremacy. The wrongs that wokeness seeks remedies for are social and economic manifestations the homo p assert might be invented exaggerated, or perhaps mitigated by past historical context, or a current narrative quite different from the one they denounce as being peddled by those seeking to impose an anti-heterosexual, anti-male, anti-capitalist, anti-white, and or anti-Christian moral system upon everyone. To the homo p, oppression is either overblown, made up, or counterintuitively being perpetrated against the homo p themselves. A sub-subgroup emerging as its own major category are the alpha male masculinity puskerstankles. This group of homo p either emerged from, parroted the narrative of, or possibly even instigated the incel movement. They preach that the number one problem in society has been the unseating of men from the throne of power through the empowerment of women and the stigmatizing of masculinity as toxic. They denounce the acceptance of the weakling as equally deserving as the champion of the comforts and privileges of civilization. The champion is easily recognized by the things he owns, the women he has sex with, and his ability to dominate others. Some go as far as to hold that homosexuality is a psychologically misguided rebellion against the natural state of humans to form social groups with the most capable man in charge and every other member of the group subservient to his desires and edicts. An example would be Andrew Tate, a British kickboxer and reality show personality whose defining accomplishment is being symbolically castrated by a 16-year-old autistic Swedish female environmentalist. The third are the Government is the problem, Pusker Stankles. They love to repeat the jocular words of Ronald Reagan, the most terrifying words in the English language. I'm from the government, and I'm here to help.
As with the anti-wokeness Pusker Stankles, there are legitimate critiques of the U.S. government, such as that corporate interests finance wealth, the arms industry, and the two major parties wield far too much control over it, and paranoid conspiracy critiques of it, like that the impulse of society to pool its resources to be used for the collective good is a communist scheme. In a representative democracy, even one like ours, the more accurate label for which is an oligarchy with a human face, government is one of the few legal tools by which the public can influence policy at the highest level. What Reagan was giving voice to and what his political antecedents and descendants have meant by claiming conspiracies or incompetence behind every government action is to indoctrinate suspicion of the very community power that might allow people to resist the overreaching will of the wealthy and powerful. A sub-subcategory of this type are the anti-vax and anti-mask mandate thugs whose reactionary rebellion against prudent collective endeavor bodes ill for any future societal efforts to control widespread disease or disaster. An uncooperative public was barely tangential to Reagan's goal of destroying government for money's sake, but it has been one of his main legacies, along with the disemboweling of industry regulation, public education, and overall investment in infrastructure and the public sphere. This is not to say that homo s evinces no selfishness. That is obviously not the case. The difference between the selfish motives of Homo S and the pathologically antisocial reflexes of Homo P are not always easy to discern, but where the arguments simultaneously fail the tests of evidence, well-considered reason, public compassion, scientific inquiry, and sympathy for those in weaker social positions than the arguer, what is more likely at work is the uglier Mr. Hyde version of human nature embodied by Homo P. The world is tough, the Homo P of this sub-subcategory argue. Hard decisions must be made. Children and the elderly must be allowed to die of this new virus so that the economy doesn't dehydrate from lack of worker sweat. To them, efforts to help those less well-off are against the general Darwinian trend God or nature prefers. The strong are the winners in life, and after the results of the game are known, giving the losers some of the winner's portion, treasure the champions won fair and square, is cheating. The three kinds of Pusker Stankles previously described, the anti-woke, the alpha male, and the government is the problem, homo-op, overlap in a highly concentrated Venn diagram area we can call the Save the Children Pusker Stankles. Some of them may actually fear for their children, but most are upset about some mysterious other children no one but noble good guys know about. Good guys fighting the good fight against either the lizard elite or the super queer elite or the woke elite who commit such crimes as aborting babies after they're born, giving hysterectomies to children, or selling them as livestock to farms where their adrenochrome is harvested for the pleasure and longevity of the super queer woke lizard elite. Oh, and Jewish. Don't forget the Jewish elite. Obviously, members of the group Save the Children fall under this column, but also Moms for Liberty and Libs of TikTok. They may not believe or understand what they're talking about, but their purpose is not to educate. Their raison d'etre is to foment rage. The most highly effective of them are of the ut doxa, of the doxing variety, the strokers of poison penmanship. If they were individuals, 
Rather than an organizations or social media accounts, we might call them demagogues or inciters to violence. They're the stochastic terrorism people. What they tweet or post or talk about via their own op-ed offerings or from the opinion platforms of others, such as Glenn Greenwald or Joe Rogan, has predictably resulted in shootings, school board riots, bomb threats, and death threats against people they've accused of this or that crime against the children. And remember, it's somebody else's children. We're not sure whose, but we do know the names and addresses of the individuals and groups to whom concerned Pusker Stankles should take their grievances. The final group we'll discuss here are those who see the foolishness of the misguided members of the above categories, but sympathize with their grievances in a general way. They are on the side of Pusker Stankel's spirit, and because that spirit is a putrid one, they would like to dignify it with some intellectual backbone, the same way Alan Bloom of the University of Chicago tried to do with his before-wokeness anti-woke book, The Closing of the American Mind. The Pusker Stankular trait they most egregiously evince is the misuse of rationality and logic. We can call these homo p if-then, or ad logicum, Pusker Stankles. They attack arguments they have no expertise or personal involvement in purely by appeals to semantic logic. There's a famous video of Jordan Peterson, one of many, performing such an act of erroneous argumentation where he attacks environmentalists because the environment is everything. So if the problem is with everything, then how can you even define what the problem is? I'm paraphrasing, because to listen to him again actually make this argument with his own face would result in more gnashing than my teeth could endure. I don't know if a mnemonic can be devised to remember these major subcategories of the species Homo genus Puscostanculus. Perhaps in the intervening time, I will try my hand at this task. Until then, this has been the Moment of Truth. Good day. <laughs> I like that sound effect there at the end. What was that, the Law and Order theme? That was the that was the gong of truth. I don't know what that was. Some guy banging a bar outside. I have no idea what the noise is. Half the noise is here in my alley. The, the workmen were, are are not working today, so it's just some lone concerned citizen banging a gong in the alley. <laughs> All right, Jeffy. Until next time. What? Wait, how you doing? I'm, I'm yeah, better. Oh, you, you know, you know, I was sick too. At the same time, you were sick. We both have uh, have post cold kind of uh, voices right now. Yeah, post holiday cold. Everybody has it right now. Apparently, apparently at office hours last night, many people showed up who were sick and telling me that I was not the man I am because I did not show up to office hours sick. Well, <sighs> you know, no one is the man they are. No, uh, Jeffy. Right. Until next time. Yeah. Stay beautiful. Okay. Live from Landstone, from the Potawatomi people, as well as the Miami, the Kickapoo, the Sac, the Fox, the Menominee. This is Hell. Will, please remind us what is this week's question from Hell and tell us the rest of the answers. I know we have a few on Twitter, but do we have any others? Uh, just Twitter, by All the right. look of it. Uh, this week's question from Hell is What are you not looking forward to this holiday season? On Twitter, Nick replies, 
There's this elf named Larry at the mall, and I'm definitely going to murder him if he's back this year. Somebody replied to that saying, hey, lay off Larry. Chefy's <laughs> <laughs> still on one. Yeah, he likes to hang out yeah, for sure. a little bit. Okay. Um, <laughs> cultural Marxism PhD replies my mother. <laughs> All right. All right. And uh, Slarty Barfest implies my annual denial of earned health benefits from the VA is always a fantastic way to make a, the uh, SAD sad, I assume they mean seasonal affective disorder, yeah. flare up and unite with my uh, med-resistant PTSD, depression, and anxiety. But I'm going to go with Christo-fascist <laughs> mourning about being victims while they destroy our society for Jesus. Oh, all right. All right. <laughs> <laughs> That's something. Uh, so I think hands down, we know who the winner is, right? The question from hell again is, what are you not looking forward to this holiday season? We all know that the best answer was from El Tuna Pizza. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Santa's hot, hot take, take on Israel. Israel. That's yeah, exactly perfect. right. You are the winner. El Tuna Pizza will be getting in contact with you via Twitter. And uh, just send us your mailing address and tell us which piece of This Is Hell merch you want, and we'll get it in the mail to you as soon as possible. My answer to this week's question, Mel, what are you not looking forward to this holiday season? All of the worst parts of the holidays, how capitalism and religion seem to ruin everything. And you can hear how I'm going to do just that this holiday season during my monologue on this week's Patreon podcast, streaming live tomorrow at 10 a.m. and podcast shortly after at the same place, patreon.com slash thisishell. I am going to try this holiday to not let capitalism and religion ruin my holiday. Thanks to everyone who sent in an answer to this week's question from hell. We're starting off our best of 2023 series by playing our three most listened to interviews of the year, according to SoundCloud. Now, we really, to be honest with you, we have no idea what the three most uh, listened to guests or interviews are. We really have no idea because we're not just online on SoundCloud. We're online on other formats, but we're also on five different radio stations, some of which play the show multiple times. So while we have no idea of what interviewer or guest was the most listened to in 2023, we're starting off our best of 2023 series with the most listened to conversations on SoundCloud, which do give us an idea of what were the most popular interviews of 2023. I mean, what better way for listeners to choose their favorite guests or interviews than by being the most listened to conversations of the year? What better way to choose the best interviews of the year just by listening to them? So, Will, which interviews are we playing next week? Starting off with our third most listened to interview of 2023, according to SoundCloud, is our January 11th conversation with Christopher Ketchum, who was on to talk about uh, his Intercept piece he co-wrote, The Shutdown of Luxury Emissions Should Be at the Center of the Climate Revolt. Yeah, and that was also uh, suggested by both Slug and Ashwin, so thank you for your nomination and your seconding. Uh, what's the second interview? Uh, the second interview is our second most listened to conversation of 2023, uh, which featured an interview from January 10th, uh, the day prior to our talk with Chris Ketchum. Which is crazy. 
And that discussion was with Stefania Marizi on her book, Secret Power, WikiLeaks, and Its Enemies. She's very, very close to Julian Assange. Yeah, she really helped us get that interview out there. A lot of people listen to that one, so we'll be replaying that. And then on Wednesday, what else are we going to be playing next week during our Best Of series? And then our final interview of next week will be the conversation that SoundCloud says was our most listened to discussion of 2023, and that is our interview with Julia Rock on her article at The Lever titled How Big Pharma Actually Spends Its Massive Profits. New research shows that pharmaceutical companies have spent more on enriching shareholders than drug research and development over the past decade. And that's when the lever had just lever, lever, not too sure. I'm going to go with lever. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, They uh, uh, had just started, and so they were pushing their guests on us like crazy, and so we were having uh, people from the Lever on the show, and then about two months later, they were getting more and more popular, and so now they ghost us. Oh, man. So we got that going We got We got used. So, also next week, Seb Vipper will be sharing another new past inside the present. We'll also have this week in Rotten History. Jeff Dorchin will have a uh, moment of truth. A huge thank you to this week's producers, Chris Kulfan and uh, Will Ippen. Thanks to Sebastian Ronaldo and Jeff. Thanks to Dan Kugler. Richard Norwood, Alexander Jerry Theron Humiston, and Pete Valavanis, just because. Talk to you tomorrow, Thursday, on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell, when I'll offer the reasons why we need an alternative to the holidays and what that might be, plus a 2008 conversation on the rich getting richer and the rest of us getting screwed beginning Monday, December 4th. It's uh, our best of 2023, so please send in your favorite interviews or who your favorite guests were of 2023, and if we play your favorite on the air we'll thank you during the show and we hope to see you all on wednesday december 20th winter solstice eve for the annual this is hell holiday office party which will be held during our regularly scheduled office hours at carrie's lounge 2251 west Devon avenue in chicago's westridge neighborhood beginning around six in the evening is your office not having a holiday office party? Make our holiday office party yours. Does your office not have an office? Make our holiday office party yours. Don't like a lot of the people that you work with, but want to hang out with the friends you have made at work? Make our holiday office party your secret get-together with coworkers who you actually like. This is how office hours do happen on Wednesday, so please join us next Wednesday uh, for that as well. That happens as Carrie, at Carrie's too. Also, tune in next week when I will be answering, or while well, I will be announcing, sorry, what I thought were the best interviews of the year, interviews nobody has yet to nominate. And next week's question from hell, you can count on it being about Henry Kissinger. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, podcast host, live stream host, Chuck Mertz. There's only one way to get over all the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's set of shows. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, and focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, saying the simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. (laughs) My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down, and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell, and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.